Hello, everybody. So, uh, as you heard, my name is Celeste, and I think that this pulpit was made for white paper flat down, not an, um, a tablet, because I can't see. <laughs> but anyway, we'll just, um, we'll just, if you see me squinting, it's because I'm um, affected by the lights here. Oh, that's a great idea, darling. That's my husband. Um, thank you. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So um, tonight I'm going to be telling you a bit of our story. Um, and I just hope that um, many parts of the story reach out to you, or different parts of it reach out to you. Over 30 years ago, that's where we start, um, I felt God speak to me through this verse, and it was John 4, verse 23 and 24. And if you haven't heard that verse, it's, it goes something like, God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Those are the kind of worshipers that God is looking for. For my entire life, I have been, it feels like my entire life, I'm 52 and I got involved in worship at the age of 15, or 13, I think. So it's been a lifetime of learning what, how God wants me to worship him. But in doing that, in learning to worship him in spirit and in truth, the way who he's looking for, the worshipers that he's looking for, it's changed my life so drastically that I was able to overcome in the most difficult of circumstances because of that verse. So I was, I've been on um, this quest. I've been a truth seeker. So when we worship God in spirit, our spirit connects with him. But when we worship him in truth, the only truth that God wants is the truth of our hearts. He wants to know, and he knows what's going on there. I always um, think, I don't know why we hide stuff, because he knows it's there. The only person that we're hiding it from is ourselves. And I don't know why we even do that, because maybe we're ashamed or we don't want the truth of who we really are to come out. And if I have to be very honest and say that all of us have horrible stuff in our hearts, that's why we, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, because, we, because of the way that we see things. If we think of how um, we look at people, what's the first thought that comes into our mind? Is it judgment or is it love? Um, how do we see people? Do we um, call out the best in them or do we, are we jealous of, of the things that they've achieved? That kind of thing. That's like calling out the truth and not being ashamed of the fact that you feel that stuff, but just acknowledging that it's there so you can deal with it. And the next time it happens, it's like, ah, oh, okay, God, I'm sorry. It's there again. And just help me to love people. So that's been my journey. So um, the first Fast forward about eight years from that, by now I've, I've had two children, um, given birth to two boys. Our first boy, Aiden, um, had no real issues. He's now um, 26 years old, and he's just had, him and his wife have just had their own baby, so I've just become a granny, which is awesome. Um, I don't look like a granny, though, hey? <laughs> so, um, Aiden, the only problem issues that Aiden had was colic. And about 21 months later, I gave birth to another boy called Mitchell Stephen. And Mitchell was born, um, he turned our lives upside down. He was born with cerebral palsy and autism. 
Um, I, we didn't know until he was uh, seven months old that he had issues. And um, I only found out at about four months old, I just knew that there was something that was not right with him. And I had a friend who was um, uh, who worked in the NICU with um, babies, with newborn babies in intensive care. And she kept looking at Mitchell and she knew that something was wrong, but she didn't know how to tell me. So she kept suggesting things like, why don't you just like um, take him to the doctor and let him have a look at this. But she never wanted to come out and say anything. So at about four months old, um, I took him to a GP and the, um, he just, he used to cry a lot. He had projectile vomit and um, it was a really, really difficult first few months. And um, eventually I, at the doctor, the doctor just walked around his room. I was finished, I was just crying. And the doctor walked around just patting him and um, he said to me, no, he seems fine. Look, it was very difficult to diagnose anything because um, what had happened was Mitchell hadn't lost his newborn reflexes. So when they're born, their little fists are tight like this and then over time they let go and then they open and they, they play across their bodies and in the midline and that kind of thing. And he wasn't doing any of that. So he basically hadn't lost his newborn reflexes. And I had, because I'd had a child previously, I knew what to look for. So um, I eventually took him to, um, after about, the, the doctor didn't see anything, at about six months of age, I took him to a clinic sister. And um, clinic sisters are amazing because they see babies all the time. They know, um, they can see when there's an issue. So um, we put Mitchell down, and um, she just said to me, oh, he looks lovely, and he looks content, and he's such a beautiful baby, but I think you need to take him to a pediatrician. So I could only get an appointment a month later, and we went to the pediatrician, and um, they did an ultrasound through his fontanelle here, the little opening that um, hadn't closed yet, and they found that there was an abnormality in his brain. So when a child is diagnosed with cerebral palsy, it could mean anything. Um, depending on where they've been affected in their brain uh, depends on the type of disability that they have. So cerebral palsy is an umbrella term. Um, and we took him for tests and uh, to try to understand what had happened to him and we never did get down to what really happened to him. So we knew that it wasn't gonna get worse, so we had to uh, just work from then on. So we started working with physiotherapists, um, speech therapists, occupational therapists, so taking him to these weekly things um, all the time. Then um, <clears throat> Mitchell, um, yeah, he loved um, Postman Pat. <laughs> he never spoke. He was in nappies um, his whole life. And you can hear that I'm speaking in the past tense. So... Um, so I'm just going to give you the spoiler right now. We did lose him, um, which is part of our story. But um, he loved watching Postman Pat and Bob the Boulder, and he would have videos going in his bedroom and in the lounge and run between the two. He was hi quite hyperactive. And um, he would uh, kick on my car seat on long journeys <laughs> the whole way. Um, and then um, he loved peanut butter sandwiches, um, especially grinding them into the carpet. Um, he loved, if I sat down and played the piano in my times of worship at home, he would add his own pieces both sides. 
Um, he loved getting hold of his dad's drumsticks and just um, causing mayhem on them. And he loved playing, playing hide and seek with his brother. And it was so cute because he always hid in the same places. Um, but, he, but my older son always hid in the same places, but Mitchell could never find him. <laughs> and, um, and he loved playing um, with water. Loved water. We had a swimming pool at the bottom of the garden, and he was forever trying to get down to it to play. And he would often sit next to the swimming pool and play with the creepy crawly next to the pool. Um, and then he, the one time he threw a tantrum for 24 hours because I dared to leave him to have a break. And when I got home, he was so angry with me that he literally cried and um, moaned and complained for 24 hours. And we lived in Peter Maritzburg at the time, and, um, which is about a 45-minute drive from Durban. So my mother eventually came through, because um, they lived on the property with us, and she came through because she had heard him and how he was just going off pot. And um, she came and she took his hand and she shouted, we had locked ourselves in the bedroom, because we had stable doors to keep him out, just so that we could have a break from it. And um, she shouted down the passage and said, we're going to take him to KFC. So um, my husband, Brian, shouts, can you take him to KFC in Durban, please? <laughs> so he could be, just to give you an idea, he could be infuriating, he could be beautiful, he could be um, content and amazing, and he could throw the most incredible tantrums. So um, on a probably one of the worst days of our lives, the 14th of June, um, 2008, um, Mitchell got down to the swimming pool on his own. He fell down a six-foot wall, and we didn't hear him, and he made his way. We could see that he had been playing with the creepy crawly pipes next to the swimming pool, and we think that he actually turned around and climbed in because that's what he used to do, but he didn't have the strength to get himself out again. So we were um, watching a movie, upstairs um, in the lounge, the, the three of us, Brian, myself, and Aidan, and it was a cold winter's day, and I kept saying to Brian, please will you just go and check on Mitchell, um, and we were cold, we were under blankets, and we were all saying, no, he's fine, he's fine. As soon as the movie ended, um, I sent Aidan, because Mitchell would often get into his um, little, we had a special bed made for him so he could get in it, but he couldn't get out. And he'd often play in his bed. And um, we thought he was there. So I sent Aidan to go and um, see if Mitchell was there. And Aidan shouted, the gates open, the gates open. And I ran outside, and I could see that it was already too late. It's just the most horrific thing um, to see a child in the pool. And it's done, you know, over. So... I want to tell you about God's goodness in a story like this, because it's so easy to say when things like this happen, or actually it's easy to say when miracles happen and wonderful things happen, how good God is. God is so good, we say. But the moment a tragedy happens, something horrific happens to turn your entire life upside down, is God still good? We have to ask ourselves that question because in that moment, I couldn't see God's goodness. 
But in retrospect, when I began to look back after the mayhem had died down and I had seen what God had done, and I'm, I want to tell you those stories because for me, those are just phenomenal. So I ran inside to phone the paramedics. Brian ran down to get him out of the pool. And by the time I got down to the pool, there was a man standing next to Brian and he said to Brian, I'm on the phone with a paramedic. I'm going to tell you what to do. So there was no way that this man could have got into our property. We had high palisade fencing and um, a gate that didn't open, a gate that you needed to open from the inside, automated gate. We'd never seen him before. We don't know where he came from, who he was. So you can um, wonder who this man was. But he was standing next to Brian and he just brought... Uh, he calm, thank you. He just brought calm. He was telling Brian how to do resuscitation. And by the time I got down there, I could see that it was too late. And I didn't want him to be brought back worse than what he was. And, um, and so I just said, just stop. And um, we cannot remember that man leaving. He, he just, we looked again and he was gone. So but the week before this all happened, um, we had, so it was basically six days before this happened, we were at our church in Peter Maritzburg, and um, one of the young guys, a young 16-year-old boy, um, and I really love that there's so many of you young people here, because I want to just tell you that it doesn't matter how old you are, you don't have a junior Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit, so this 16-year-old young man came to us and he said he wanted to pray for Mitchell. So he began to pray and then he saw this picture and he said, um, I just see Mitchell behind this really, really thick, thick glass and he wants to get through the glass. And then I just saw the glass beginning to shatter and then he, he walked through into his, into his healing and so that was the first thing. So we were, and he said, he kept saying, it's going to happen soon. It's going to happen soon. On the same day, six days before he died, this um, man um, who we know very well, who was on leadership at the church that we were at, came to us and he was weeping. And he doesn't even remember this, but he was weeping. And he came to us and he, and he held on to us and he said, guys, over the next few weeks and months, God is going to carry you in his envelope of love. And at the time, we were just, we were like, okay, great, thanks, you know? And then um, in the mayhem of that moment, I was holding Mitchell, who was gone, and those two words came into my mind, that he's walked through into his healing, and that we're going to be held in an envelope of God's love. And at the same time, I, I, it was almost like I was in this bubble with God. I could hear everything that was going on around me. I didn't respond emotionally. I was just in silence, and God was speaking to me. And um, in the same moment, I heard and I saw multitudes of angels around our home, and they were all roaring. They were all shouting, and I knew that they were shouting, we're for you, we're for you, we're for you, we're with you. And um, our friends began to arrive, and um, they were just phenomenal. It was like, you know, if you've ever read the story of Job, and it says that his friends sat with him in silence for seven days. And 
it wasn't seven days, but it was a few hours that our friends, about, I didn't even know they were there, but I turned around and I just saw a sea of people standing in silence in our yard, just praying for us, loving us. And um, that was just phenomenal. Um, so carrying on from that, I, um, you know, you've, you've got to try and sort all this stuff out in your head, um, in your mind and in your heart. Because at that moment and in the weeks to come, I couldn't see God's goodness. And I remember on that night, one of the um, leaders from our church phoned me. And he was almost shouting at me over the phone. And he was saying, Celeste, God has not given you guilt as your portion. Do you understand me? He has not given you guilt as your portion. And I think when a child dies, and it's a drowning in a swimming pool at home, it's very easy for the rest of your life to sink down into guilt and hold on to that thing. But guilt is the thing that cripples you. And God doesn't expect us to stay in a place of guilt. And I just remember saying, thank you, thank you. And only about six months later, I was in a, um, in a support group meeting with a whole bunch of mums who had lost children. And they all went around the circle and were talking about the guilt that they felt. And none of them had been responsible in any way. It was through accidents, through motorbike accidents, diving accidents, um, and all sorts of things. But um, my son drowned on our watch. And I didn't feel a shred of guilt. And it was a miracle because I knew that God didn't want me to feel like that. And I wasn't going to sink into that place. And it's um, horrific to place somebody in that place. So another time, um, as part of the journey, I, was, I used to do a lot of my crying in the bathroom because the, the running water really helped. <laughs> And it drowned out the, the sound of it and just helped me to cry. Um, and I remember being in the bathroom and I was um, in the shower and I just began to pray and say, God, were you with him when he was struggling? And um, straight away, God showed me this incredible picture of, of my son Mitchell and Jesus underwater and Jesus was kissing his face. And it was like, I, I mean, I can't conjure up pictures like that. And I just know that it's God. He just does the most amazing things. Um, another time, so Mitchell used to watch um, Hillsong Kids Worship. He loved it. And it was an amazing thing because every time we would um, put those um, uh, DVDs on for him, um, when it came time for the altar call, and I'd, I'd watch him, he'd walk, it was the only time he really focused at the altar call, and whenever he heard the name of Jesus, he would chuckle, he'd go, <laughs> and it was like he knew, when I'd pray for him, at, when I went to bed at night, I'd put my hand on him, and I'd go, Jesus, and he'd go, <laughs> he would just laugh at the name of Jesus, and um, he would be, I'd be cooking in the kitchen, and he'd be standing, and they would do an altar call, and he'd put his face right up against the television set and be focused. And I begin to pray for him. And I just say, God, meet him where he's at. Meet him where he's at. And um, you know him. You know him better than any, any of us know him. So when Mitchell died, um, in the very, very back of my mind, I had this little niggle. Like, God, is he with you? 
<clears throat> and this is, I just, God is amazing. What he orchestrates for, when you're walking in him and with him, the things that he orchestrates for you is just beyond comprehension. So um, at Mitchell's memorial service, um, there was a man sitting in the service, and he um, used to collect vintage fishing reels. And um, he had this fishing reel that he had just found they'd been looking for for two years. And my son, at the, my Aidan at the time, loved fishing. Um, and this man came up to me with a package the one day, and he, and he handed it to me, and he said, I, I felt God at Mitchell's funeral, I felt God say that I need to give you this, um, this fishing reel. And a letter was attached to it. And when we opened it up, it was a vintage, a vintage fishing reel called the Mitchell 315. <clears throat> so for Aidan, it was a little bit of a connection to his brother, um, maybe that he didn't even comprehend. Um, but for me, there was a significance to the number 315. I felt it in me. And I would ask God a few times. I'd say, God, what is that number? Because it, it just wouldn't leave me. It just kept on and on and on. And eventually, um, I felt to look in my Bible at John 3.15. And um, <clears throat> John 3.15 says that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And for me, that was an assurance of where Mitchell was. It was like a thank you, God. You are the only one that knew I had that little tiny niggle, and I know that he's with you. <clears throat> um, only God knew that um, I was incredibly affected by um, the movie, what's the one with Aslan? <laughs> La, the, 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 yeah, that, Narnia, thank you, Narnia. <laughs> I was so affected that I can't remember the name. <laughs> so, um, so I watched Narnia, and I was so affected by Aslan. Um, it, they depicted him so beautifully for me that I just cried when I saw him. And um, this beautiful lion um, depicting Jesus. And I was... Um, Mitchell used to get really excited about um, water. And whenever he saw it, um, he, would, he had this way of like throwing his leg out, throwing his arms out and squealing with delight and running to try and get to it because he loved it so much. So um, I have to say that I did not do this thing perfectly. Um, I failed. I threw my Bible away at times. I got unhappy. I got depressed. It was a long journey of getting, but I'm telling you about God's goodness through it all. So um, I went on to tranquilizers and um, uh, sleeping tablets for about six weeks. And eventually um, the tranquilizers still worked for me, but the sleeping tablets stopped working. So I was, I lay awake all night in a stupor. Otherwise for all that time, I would just wake up at like two o'clock, three o'clock and just weep. And um, Eventually, I was at a church service and uh, got a bunch of my friends together, and I said, please just pray for me. I'm going to go off all of these tablets, and I, I just want to sleep. So they did. They prayed for me, and I went home, and that night I slept. And for the first time, I had a dream about Mitchell. 
And in my dream, Mitchell was standing next to me, and Aslan walked in front of me. And I don't know if you know in the movie of Narnia, he does this beautiful roar of, I, you're mine. And when Mitchell saw him, he did that excited thing that he used to do with water, and he squealed with delight. And he ran up to Aslan and just rubbed his face in his mane in my dream. And I woke up, and I, and I just remember being so grateful because God in his kindness gives us dreams to see the ones we love and to see where they are and what they're doing and to give us assurances along the way. Um, another time I was um, crying again, this time on the bathroom floor, <laughs> and, um, and I was really angry. It was about, uh, about four months after we had lost Mitchell. And I just remember um, crying and shouting at God and just going, I'm, I'm, I'm so angry. I'm, it was the first time that I'd actually let out this emotion. And I just want to say that God is big, and he can really, really handle our puny anger. It's nothing to him. But in my anger, <clears throat> I had the most incredible moment because in my anger comes from pain. So in the deep pain that I was feeling, I felt God say to me from, and I realized afterwards it was from Song of Songs 6 verse 5, and in his grace, he said to me, turn your eyes from me, they overwhelm me. And it's an amazing thing to know that the Father understands our pain. He knows it well. Another thing that um, that happened was a friend of ours had this uh, dream of, um, she said there were two angels sitting on the roof of our house in her dream. And she said that they watched, they saw Mitchell. She said it was so real that the one was eating an apple. And they watched Mitchell go down into um, the swimming pool. And this one angel threw the apple over his shoulder and said to the other one, come, he needs us. And for me, that was just an incredible story. I just thought, oh, God, you're so amazing. You're so amazing at how you love us and what you give to us in our um, deepest pain. <clears throat> a really poignant time, it was also um, a few months after we had lost Mitchell, I was reading my Bible and um, I read in, by the way, I just, I have to say that when Mitchell died, all I wanted to do was read my Bible. I did not want um, anybody to give me platitudes because they wouldn't help. I didn't want people to say anything to me because I knew that they could not help me. I knew that the only one that could help me was God himself. So I um, just read my Bible and devoured it. I wanted to see how the Israelites mourned because I wanted to do this thing perfectly. <laughs> I wanted to like, be above the pain. And what did the Israelites do? They went straight, they tore their beards, they ripped their clothes, they, put, they wore sackcloth and put ashes all over them and they, they wailed and cried. And I just thought, here we are. We're so westernized. We're so afraid to show our pain to anybody. We just want to see all the people to see all the time that we're coping with life, you know, and we, 
we hide stuff because we don't want people to see what's really, truly going on. And then we never really understand why we're not moving forward, why we're not able to move forward in God, why we're not able to move forward in our life because there's just so much that we hide. And um, so I was reading the Word and I read... Uh, Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26, and it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart forever. And in that moment, I felt God say to me, When you get to heaven, who are you going to look for first, Mitchell or me? And I realized then that if I allow my entire focus to be on the death of Mitchell for the rest of my life, I'm going to drown in a sea of despair. And what happens is when these tragedies happen, we focus so much on the loss that we don't focus on the gain of heaven and the gain of Jesus and the gain of relationship and of the Holy Spirit. And also, I learned God wants everything he doesn't want us to be half-hearted. I didn't want to walk around for the rest of my life as a woman of sorrow. I didn't want to walk around for the rest of my life where people would point at me and say, she's the one who lost her child. I want people to look at me and to be able to say, you can see that she loves Jesus. And that's it. <clears throat> How are we doing for time? All right. Um. So in the beginning, I spoke about um, truth and finding that truth um, in our hearts and living the rest of our lives, opening up our hearts and speaking that truth. And what I found was um, when a tragedy happens, when something huge happens in your life, um, your worship becomes more honest. And I think that we, quite, we can be quite superficial in the way that we worship God, because our hearts are not truly and fully connected to him. They, there are things happening, and God, I want this, and I want this, and I do want to be closer to you, but I'm not really willing to do what it takes, and I, I, I do want to have um, this wonderful life with you, God, but I also want to do that, and that, and that, and that. And it's quite a difficult journey going into that place where I'm fully for God, and I fully want the things of God. And being, and fully wanting the things of God is actually being in worship and telling him how angry you are with him and telling him that you are disappointed and telling him that this is hard. And I remember um, the first, uh, an, another really difficult moment of worship was on my first Mother's Day without Mitchell. And on Mother's Day, I'm standing in church and worshiping Jesus with my hands raised and just feeling um, absolute validation from the Father. Because he looked at me and he said to me, you are Mitchell's mother. It's something that I will never not be. I will always be his mother. And another thing that I learned um, was that self-pity keeps us in a place of despair. So... When things like this happen, we can walk around for a time feeling extremely sorry for ourselves. And you know what? It's just part of um, the way we, we do things. Some people are, are um, much better at self-pity than others. <laughs> I'm very good at self-pity. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I just remember going through quite a long time feeling quite sorry for myself. And I just remember um, we, had, we had moved here about four and a half years after we lost Mitchell. And I remember driving my car. And as I'm driving, I remember feeling very sorry for myself. And in that moment, a moment of realization and truth came to me where I just thought, I can't live like this for the rest of my life. And I remember just shouting, no. And saw myself pulling myself up by the scruff of my neck and just going, no. I'm not going to live like this for the rest of my life. I'm not going to live in despair and self-pity. And I don't want people to feel sorry for me either because that's not the way to live. Um, why feel sorry for me when you know that somebody's crossed over to a more beautiful place and a more beautiful reality than we could ever imagine? And I just remember driving in my car and then saying no and then beginning to thank God for where Mitchell was. And I remember just praying and saying, God, thank you that you've got him. Thank you. Thank you that, that he's with you. And at another time, when I was going through a dip, I, was, I, would, I would say, God, have you got him? Is he okay? And just straight away, God just giving me this beautiful picture of him holding Mitchell to him and looking at me and going, I've got him. I love him. He's mine. And I just remember my worship of him in, the, in those times being raw and unfiltered, just knowing that the Father can see right into my heart. He knows. He knows everything. But he wants me to know and he wants me to tell him. And I was reading um, the story of creation the other day and I just thought in the garden, I realized that Adam and Eve never did that. They never said, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what we did was wrong. They just blamed everybody. And that whole thing of bl blame, I, I did mention this a few weeks ago, but I just remember being at the poolside and Brian and I locking eyes with each other. And um, there was something very significant happening in that moment. I didn't know what he was thinking. He didn't know what I was thinking, but I didn't want to face it for a long time. So it took me about 10 years before I asked him what he was thinking in that moment. Because I remember saying, please, you know, please go and check on him, please go and check on him, and everybody was saying, no, he's fine, he's fine. And in that moment, when um, Brian had just finished resuscitating Mitchell and we locked eyes, when I said stop, um, I was thinking, I asked you to go and look for him. And in the same moment, I said to myself, but you could have gone as well. And in that moment, he was looking at me and thinking, is our marriage going to survive this? And I think a part of that whole in the Garden of Eden, that blaming one another will um, keep us in a very unhealthy place. And when we can learn to forgive and let go of of things, and also take our own blame, take our own stuff, because it's very, um, a lot of the time, it's a difficult thing to actually admit that you're wrong, but if we can admit that we're wrong in certain instances and circumstances, God does something amazing in that thing, and when forgiveness can, can come, and if we can actually live without the shame that Dave was speaking about this morning, our lives will change. 
So I want to, I think that's, I want to, um, I'd like to just pray for us. But I just want to say that, I don't know if the musicians would like to come up um, so long. Um, but I just want to just open the floor for you guys. That I'm, I'm going to be worshipping up front here tonight. And um, I would really, I just want to open myself to you. And, and I know that the other leaders would be very, other people would be very happy to pray for you too. But if there's something that you need prayer for, um, to overcome something in your life, then I would love to invite you to just come and ask for prayer. And we would love to pray for you. I'd love to just pray for you, for us all now, before we go into a time of worship. Lord Jesus Christ, I just stand before you now and just bring every single one of us to you, God. You know what's happening in our lives. You know what's happened in the past. You know what will happen in the future. And I thank you, God, that you put things in place for those who love you and who walk with you. You put things in place for our journey so that we can look back and see your goodness. And I just pray, God, if there is anyone here tonight that is struggling to see God's goodness, I pray that they would admit it. I pray that it would be an admission and a confession that, God, I cannot see your goodness right now. Please show it to me. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, won't you begin to show your goodness to each person in the room tonight? And I pray that they would begin to see, God, the pathway that you have laid before them. And I pray, God, tonight that each one of us would make a decision to move closer to you, to, to love you deeper, to love others deeper, to love each other deeply from the heart. I thank you for your presence. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, won't you come? Won't you come right now? Thank you, Jesus.